Uh, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the passage that was just read aloud to us, Galatians chapter 2, the passage our friend Nathan just read, verses 1 through 10. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Excited to get in? Uh, well, my wife Stephanie was on jury duty this week, and uh, she didn't have to, she got out of it because of childcare reasons. But anytime I think of jury duty, I, I think of, uh, I'm reminded of those reality law court shows. Everyone know what I'm talking about? Judge Judy, People's Court, Judge Brown. I didn't grow up with cable, so uh, if, if you are sick or bored, sometimes the only thing on CW11 or Q13 Fox was uh, Judge Judy. But in these shows, you know, if, if you've seen these shows, our law courts, two people present their, their side, their case. Two sometimes seemingly different stories are presented, and then there's the verdict. And usually the moment in the show that changes everything is when the truth comes out, right? When the facts come out. When that person says, this is what really happened, and here are the facts. And, and we know this happens too, like we're having a debate, or we're having a conversation with a friend, and two people have different ideas. How do you resolve that? You look at the facts. Right, so let's say you have a friend that says, I don't know if the earth was really round. I think it was flat. Right, Katie? <laughs> what do we look at? We want to look at what, what does science say? What are the facts? What is the truth? And this is what Paul is doing in Galatians. His teaching, his ministry is coming under attack. People are presenting a false, a contrary message or story of what is going down here. And, and what Paul has to do in Galatians is defend his gospel and his ministry. And this is, we're right in the middle of his defense of that in Galatians chapter 2, because his message, his ministry were under attack. The Christians and churches that Paul loved and cared for were being influenced by false teachers, a group that was making another claim that were leading Christians astray. They were claiming things like, Paul was not a true apostle. He was incomplete. He didn't have the whole truth. He was missing some things. And they were claiming that he was in agreement with the real church leaders, you know, the ones who had really been with Jesus, those big dogs who were over the church in Jerusalem. They claimed that Paul's gospel was different than that of Peter's and James, that it wasn't just grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, that works mattered, that circumcision mattered, that you had to obey the ceremonial law. And this is why Paul writes Galatians to defend the truth of the gospel, to destroy those false claims, and he opens the letter expressing his astonishment, his amazement. Remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at that passage, I am astonished that you're so quickly turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some that want to distort the gospel that was preached to you. And then last week, Nathan looked at the passage that said, I would want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached to you was not man's gospel, meaning I didn't get this gospel from someone else or from the apostles that they taught me. I got it directly from Jesus. I wasn't swayed or influenced by anyone else. And Paul's going to continue that argument here in Galatians 2, chapter 1 through 10. So we're going to look at that first passage, that first question in your handout. What does the text say? Verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Remember last week, Nathan talked about that it was after three years after his conversion that he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, but he was only there 15 days. He wasn't there long enough to be influenced or wasn't like he was taught by Cephas. 
Then 14 years later, he goes up again to Jerusalem, taking Titus along with him. And Titus is a Roman name. He was a Gentile Christian. And Titus is going to be a sort of test case. Like, if, if Titus, who is this Gentile, is he going to be made to be circumcised in Jerusalem, like these false teachers are claiming? This, this, is what, this is what Paul was going to be about doing. And Paul didn't go up because he was summoned or because the apostles called for him or he was, he was like beckoned from the outside. He was called by God to do this. That's what he says in verse 2. I went up because of a revelation that was, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I, had, I was not running or had not run in vain. So he's, he's setting his gospel that he preached before these Jerusalem leaders who most likely would have included Peter, James, and John. And what is he? Are they going to make Titus be circumcised? And if they did, for Paul, this would have, this would have made his work to be regarded as in vain. Because in a sense, the church would have been split. There would be two, a ministry to the Jews and a ministry to the Gentiles. And it would have hindered Paul's preaching of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It would have made Paul's job a lot harder if he didn't have the agreement or the approval or the acceptance, if they weren't in unison on this gospel truth. Does that make sense? So it wasn't as if Paul was questioning the gospel or his calling, right? He says, even if an angel preaches this contrary gospel, he's not questioning his gospel. But the running in vain would be if the leaders in the Jerusalem church disagreed with him, it would make his work very hard and a divided church. But he says in verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. See, the church is in agreement. Circumcision, obedience to the Mosaic law, is not required or necessary for salvation. And Paul stating this is showing that the influential leaders in Jerusalem opposed the false teachers just like Paul did. Those false teachers were not in agreement with the leaders in Jerusalem like they claimed. Because non-Jewish Christians did not have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. If you were a Gentile and a Christian, you did not have to observe circumcision or other ceremonial laws to be a Christian. The false teachers were wrong. This is the, the facts, the truth. You don't have to become Jewish to be in Christ. You don't get your righteousness from the law, but through faith. And for Paul, this, had, this was a big deal. This had massive implications, this defense of the gospel. And he says why at the end of verse 5. To them we did not even yield for a moment, those false teachers who were secretly brought in to spy out the freedom so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul knows it, that he had submitted the truth of the gospel to these false teachers and that circumcision would be required for salvation, that the gospel would not be kept pure. It would be tainted. It would be distorted. And he says in verse 6, those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. God has no favorites. They added nothing to me. In other words, the apostles who were in Jerusalem didn't add anything to Paul's gospel like the false teachers were. Right? They were saying, well, Paul has half of the truth, but he forgot about the circumcision and obedience of the law. For Paul, he's saying, no, they didn't add anything to my gospel. I'm preaching the same gospel that they are. We're all in agreement here. The gospel is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It says, even on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What Paul's saying here is that I am an equal with Peter. We're equals. Peter is not better than me. I'm not a lesser apostle. And we're all preaching the same gospel. We just have different assignments. Paul had been given the right hand of fellowship here, which is an expression of agreement and unity. They were locked in arms. They were on the same team. So we see what the text is saying. Because of a revelation, Paul went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. He set before them the gospel that he was preaching to silence false teachers. Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised. And this matter arose because false teachers were secretly brought in. They were infiltrated to spy out the freedom they had in Christ. But Paul didn't give in. He didn't submit even for a moment so that the truth might be preserved for the Galatians. The apostles didn't add anything to his message, unlike what the false teachers were doing. And when they saw that he had been entrusted with the gospel, they perceived that he had been given grace. They linked arms with him. That's what the text is saying, right? So what does it mean? That's that second question that we look at each week. What does the text mean? What did it mean for the original audience? And what are some principles from the text that we can apply today? Paul's focus in Galatians 2 verses 1 through 10 is that the gospel was the same as the apostles, that they were all in unison. He was accepted by the apostles, not that he needed to be accepted. His authority was not from them. He did not need to establish his authority. His authority and truth was confirmed and affirmed by the church. It was endorsed. The church leaders in Jerusalem and Paul were all in agreement. They saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. They were all in agreement that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And notice too what they were also in agreement in verse 10. They were in agreement about remembering the poor. The only thing that Paul records that they asked him to do, apart from continuing to preach the gospel, is remember the poor, which Paul says is the very thing that he was eager to do. Now, as I was studying this passage, the a truth stood out to me in the text that, that hadn't jumped out to me before studying this week. And I think this principle is so foundational in the passage that it's actually seen in three different ways, or worded three different ways. It's this. When Paul received the gospel, when he was entrusted with the gospel, when he was shown grace, it did not stop with him. When he had been given this great calling and gift, the gift was not for him alone. It was for others. Do you pick up on that? Look at verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? You, others. Look at verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to who? The uncircumcised, others. Look at verse 9. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, for what? that we should go to the Gentiles. And I think Paul's wording in verse 9, when they saw the grace that was given to me, it's, it's a similar way of describing this, this reality of being entrusted with the gospel. Because when the apostles perceived the grace, this grace could be a reference to the grace that God had shown Paul in his salvation. It could be a reference to the grace that, that God was showing Paul in his ministry. It could have been the grace that they had perceived in Paul based on his clear understanding of the gospel and the doctrine of grace. And I think it could be all three of these. 
This is what they perceived the grace in. The point is that James and Cephas and John saw the grace that would given to Paul that he should go. So grace is, is not just what Paul was called by. Grace is what marked and propelled. It's what sustained and led his mission, his preaching. Does that make sense? Grace and the truth of the gospel is not just a truth. It's the truth that brings freedom, and it's not only for the one who receives it, but it's to go through the one who receives it. Paul knew that what was at stake here, if he didn't defend the truth of the gospel, if he didn't preserve the truth of the gospel, it was freedom. Freedom was at stake. Slavery was at stake. And Paul was so committed to this gospel and the implications of it that he wrote Galatians, right? He rebuked the Galatians. He called out the false teachers. He defended his apostolic authority. He defended the attacks against the unity of the church leadership. He actively sought to preserve the truth of the gospel. It was for others. And here's how this truth is applied to us. Like Paul, who had been entrusted with the gospel, this gospel that was affirmed and not added to by the church leaders. Like Paul, who sought to actively defend the gospel from t false teachers and preserve it, we are entrusted with the same gospel for others. Amen? You guys still with me? Everyone doing okay? Entrusted means assigned the responsibility for something. Invested, given responsibility, or charged. Right? Like, if I were just to come up to you and say, here's my keys, you might ask, for what? Am I supposed to hold on to these? You want me to go to your house and get something? Are these to your truck? Are these to your shed? Are these to your house? I, I would give the responsibility. These, I'm giving you these keys to open my truck or to go into my house and get some cheese or... The person says, I'm, I'm giving you a million dollars. The person giving you the money charges you with the responsibility of what's to be for, right? Either they're going to say, this is a gift. Use it however you want. Buy a yacht or invest this or bury it under my house or in my coffin. I don't know. The point is the concept of God entrusting his truth, a gift to his people that's supposed to go through his people is seen all the way through the Bible. God blessing his people for others. God doing something to his people in order to do something through his people is a theme that we see all throughout the scriptures. God called Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and through you the nations are going to be blessed. Meaning, I'm going to bless you to bless others. This is what he told the nation of Israel the descendants from Abraham. I am going to bless you for the nations. This is what Jesus calls the disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's a task, there's a purpose, there's an, an assignment, there's an entrusting that happens with God's people. After Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses meaning giving the Spirit for something, entrusting the gospel for something. We see that? Is that making sense? This was Jesus' last command as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Go, make disciples. Teach others to observe all that I have commanded. All right, so in summary, 
Like Paul, all Christians have been entrusted with the gospel, and we have been given grace for others. When the gospel comes to us, it's to go through us and out to others. We preserve the truth for others. Because I think just like in Paul's day, there are still false teachers that are alive and well in the church. There are many false teachers, false brothers secretly in the church trying to taint and distort the truth of the gospel. And the responsibility of Christians is not to yield in submission for a moment because the truth is to be preserved for others. Freedom is at stake here. Slavery is at stake, right? There's many who might even be gathered in a building called a church that will hear a message of a false gospel saying, stop sinning, try harder, clean up your life. And that's the false gospel. Obey these rules, work, work, work. A church that's not centered or built on the gospel crushes and damns those who are in the church, and it's not sweet or compelling or good news that the world needs to hear. This truth must be preserved. There's also another clear passage in the story about the mark or evidence of being entrusted with the gospel. Did you find it interesting when they saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel that the only thing they asked him, as recorded in Galatians, was to remember the poor? I was racking my brain. It's like, how do, how do these two fit together? Entrusting with the gospel and remembering the poor. Is that just kind of a random command that gets thrown in there? Was that just like a little sidebar? How is that related to being entrusted with the gospel? And then I came across one commentary that said it like this. Paul's concern for the poor, as evidence here, is in accord with the broader principle demonstrated throughout Scripture that genuine preaching of the gospel in every age must be accompanied by the meeting of physical needs as well, just as Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons along with his preaching ministry. Meaning, a mark and a demonstration of true gospel preaching is remembering the poor, caring for physical needs. Here's how I think this all comes together. When a Christian gets invited to believe the gospel, they're invited to Jesus, the invitation is come and live, right? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to me and you'll never thirst again. Come to me and you'll never be hungry again. But the response to that invitation is later what Jesus says, go and die. Give your life for others. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. And give yourselves especially to those who are in need. Those who are poor and oppressed. The orphan and the widow. There's a problem, though, isn't there? Although we have this great calling, this great responsibility, this great privilege, we've been entrusted with this precious gift of the gospel, we tend to be like that selfish child with candy who hoards it to themselves, doesn't share with the siblings, mine, right? We don't naturally fulfill our calling. We naturally resist these realities. We're prone to take great gifts of God, the greatest gift of God, even Jesus himself, and how to be reconciled to him, the news of this, and turn inward, aren't we? Like we're masters at this. We're prone to preserve things for ourselves. This week, Will and I saw uh, someone eating a bag of flaming hot Doritos. Never heard of flaming hot Doritos? I guess it's the, the hottest flavor of Doritos now. And Will takes the bag of Doritos and starts looking at the ingredients. 
And there must have been 25, 30 ingredients in this bag of Doritos. And Bill goes, wow, that's a lot of ingredients, right? Do you think it'd just be corn, salt, seasoning? Nope. Names I can't even pronounce. Glucose, hextasterone. Well, I don't know what it is. Natural and artificial flavors, whatever that means. Right? And he says, man, that's a lot of preservatives. Now, why does Frito-Lay put preservatives in their Doritos? So that they last longer, right? The the purpose is for the consumer, right? So they they can last longer. They can stay on the shelf longer. They can make more of a profit. It's for the consumer. And when we think about being entrusted with the gospel, we're not just consumers, are we? Like when we think about Paul preserving the truth, he wasn't just preserving it as if he was the consumer. Like he's putting the gospel on the shelf. It's going to stay there for a rainy day. Paul thinks of preserving the gospel like the producers and the distributors do for others. That's the purpose. Because if you're just making these Doritos on the assembly line, you're just popping them in, right? I don't need to preserve these. Straight from oven to mouth. But we're prone to just be consumers, to turn inward. We live our lives as if they're functionally and centrally about us. We wake up, the default mode, think about me. We take good things that God has given us and they end with us. Our lives, our houses, our families, our careers, our money, our free time, our vacation time. We hang out with people who we like, who like us. We want to be comfortable. We value our comfort. And even worse, we can often be so blinded by our own selfishness that we don't even realize how selfish we really are. One pastor said it like this, we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. Even as Christians, as Christians, we're prone to think the gospel just ends with us. Or we can be ignorant of these realities and being okay with our ignorance. Or we can be kind of half-taught in these truths. We don't really think it's our responsibility for others. We think it's okay to be selfish and isolated. Pastor Ray Ortland said it like this. For the early Christians, community and mission was inseparable from Jesus and its gospel. And in Galatians 2 here, Paul is talking about community and mission partnering with other Christians to get the gospel out to many people. He says, if the early Christians could look into a time machine and look at all the Christians who don't live in community and don't live on mission, they would ask, where did you get your Jesus? I think we can also resist these realities by not finding the gospel supremely precious and experiencing the gospel as ultimately freeing. It's just a true reality of human experience that you'll talk about what you love. What does what you talk about most demonstrate about your love? If we love the world, if we love human approval and acceptance, if we love these light momentary pleasures and earthly trinkets and toys above the all-satisfying greatest joy, highest treasure of Jesus in Jesus, we just won't do it. We won't hold out Jesus as the ultimate satisfaction because we're not experiencing the ultimate satisfaction that he is. So how do we resist these realities naturally? Selfishness, ignorance, unbelief, callous hearts. I was writing this sermon uh, this week in a coffee shop. 
sipping. I was at the, there was a new place, Empire Coffee, in the Normandy Park County Center. Uh, I was sipping a cold brew, and I was in this comfortable shop in air conditioning. I was looking out my window. There was two Mercedes and an Acura and a Hummer and all, just all these nice cars and all this wealth around me. And I was reading Galatians 2.10 and just thinking about that. And I'm callous to this. Remembering the poor. And I'm callous and often ignorant of it because oftentimes it's a sin of omission, isn't it? We're not doing something that God has called us to do. We can get so just surrounded in our own little worlds and just we ignore and isolate and we don't even want to think about that and we're unaware of it. But praise God that there's grace and forgiveness and patience, isn't there? Thanks be to God for his grace and patience. Although we have shucked and neglected and ignored and been disobedient to our callings, we have failed again and again. We have a friend, we have an advocate, we have an elder brother who had done it perfectly, who's accomplished it. Amen? This is how we look at question four. Jesus is the hero. Jesus was focused, was clear on his calling and his purpose in life. He told his disciples, I have come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many, and he did it perfectly. He fulfilled it. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And John 14, 31 says that Jesus did all that the Father commanded him. John 6, 38 says he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. Luke records us that Jesus read the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue, which said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed. He rolled up the scroll, he sat down, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He fulfilled it. He did it. Jesus hung out with not the high and the mighty of society. He himself became poor. Says the son of man, I myself don't even have a place to lay my head. Jesus was ridiculed by the religious leaders and Pharisees because he hung out with sinners. Like the song we sung, we just, we just sung it. Jesus, friend of sinners, he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was born in a simple family. He was born in a feeding trough. He lived a life of poverty. He died naked and ashamed and publicly ridiculed on the cross. He loved the poor so much that he became poor and gave up his riches so that those who are poor might become rich in him. He was the perfect, selfless Savior. He came for others, died for others, was raised from the grave for others. And friends, he did this for you and me. He took the entrusting, the calling, the responsibility that God gave him and fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. And in the midst of our struggles and our failures, when we see how Jesus did it better, how he is better, how he's the hero, I think that comforts us and compels us. That's how we seek to answer question number five. How does that, the gospel, Jesus being the hero, Jesus fulfilling the calling perfectly, the entrusting that God gave him for others, finishing it, never failing. How does that empower us to obey in our calling? Like I said, I think it comforts and compels us. It comforts us because we know that our identity, 
our righteousness, our acceptance with God, is not based on how well we steward the gospel. That's good news, isn't it? How quickly we can become inward and self-focused and shuck our calling. Like our righteousness, our acceptance, our love that God gives us is not based on how well we perform. That's freeing, isn't it? That frees us from the burden and the crushing of, this, of our failures from obeying God's law because we know, friends, that our worth and our acceptance is not based on our obedience. Because if we put our hope in how missional we are and how many times we share the gospel and how well we're being entrusted and stewarding this calling to preserve the gospel and, and share the gospel for others, if we put our hope and our trust in that, we either become very prideful and self-righteous because, oh, I'm doing this way better than Cameron. (laughs) Or we're going to be crushed because we'll never feel like we're really living up. We'll compare ourselves to that person who, who does it much better than us. It brings comfort that we are accepted, we are loved, but that also brings boldness. It compels us to action. Because if we know that we are perfectly and fully loved, we work from his love. We seek to fulfill our callings, not as a burdensome duty, but as a delight. Our father has asked us to do this. We love our father. We know he has good things for us. This is a good thing. I want to work with my dad. I see him working. I want to partner with him. This is a great calling. Thank you, father. I want to do this. Help me. Amen? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Meaning, obedience comes from an increasing, continual experience of the love of Jesus. Our obedience also demonstrates who and what and how much we've experienced that love. So when we hear the gospel, we see Jesus' faithfulness, we see him dying in our place, the great love that he had for us when we didn't deserve it, when we were ignorant, when we were rebelling against God, Christ died for us. That changes us. When we see in the gospel Jesus lovingly giving himself up for us, leaving all of the riches, sitting at the right hand of the Father, becoming poor that we might become rich. When we are reminded that if Jesus was not faithful, was not obedient, was not committed to the truth, and giving up his life for us, we would still be in our poor and lowly condition. We would still be in our sins destined for hell and for wrath, not wanting to be with God, ignorant of our true condition, so deeply broken and hurting and unaware of the invitation and hope that we have in Jesus. We would still be enslaved, but addicted to the chains that held us there. It's only by his love and his grace. And we say and we trust, remind ourselves that if Jesus gave up his life for me, I can give up my life for others. We want to be so moved and changed and fueled and compelled by the love of God that he has shown us in Jesus that we are changed from the inside out and that we move out. We move and love our neighbors. This is what the Apostle Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ compels us. Does the love of Christ compel us? I pray that in light of what we see in this passage, that we would count it a great privilege to be entrusted with the gospel. 
that is the power of God for salvation. That we would see all that Jesus has done for us, that we would live our lives to the glory of God and the good of others, especially the poor and the oppressed. And I pray that we do this not because we can outserve God or that we can ever outlove God or do this for God, but we serve and love as a demonstration of the love that He's shown us. We remember the poor not to feel superior or to become saviors for those in need, but to reflect the love of the Savior who loved us in our poverty and in our oppression. We work for the oppressed because we know that Jesus was oppressed for us, that we serve and care for the needy because we are showing a visible, tangible expression of what Jesus has done for us. So I've just been praying this week in my own heart that, God, you would remove this callousness, this ignorance, this blindness that I have, that you would show me how to love like you have loved me, that you would break my heart for what breaks yours. I'm praying that for our church. Let's pray that the Spirit would ignite our hearts to, to leverage all that we are and all that we have for others. Guys, there's a lot of needs in our city. I know that Des Moines has wealth and, and rich and there's waterfront views and nice expensive homes, but there are a lot of needs. There are a lot of poor, there are a lot of broken, and there are a lot of broken around the world. been praying that we might free up resources in our budget to give above and beyond to those who are in need. I'm praying that we would free up our schedules to help with the poor and not just give and volunteer for good causes, but because we are investing in the lives of those who are around us. I pray that God might lead us to remember the poor through foster care and through adoption and using extra bedrooms that God has given us to serve the poor. I want to call out the called. I want the word of God to speak to your heart and cause you to do something. Let's seek to preserve the truths of the gospel for our own hearts, for our own well-being, for the freedom that we have in Christ and for those who are around us, who right now are in slavery. I'm praying that we don't be selfish and, and short-sighted for the future generations who need to hear the gospel that needs to be preserved in us and through us. Amen? For people who are right now, as we speak, are in prison. They're hung over. They're in college consumed with exams. Or they're living in, in luxury, ignorant of their dangerous spiritual condition apart from Christ. Or right now they might be callous and asleep and numbing their minds watching Amazon Prime or Hulu or Netflix. People are doing it right now around us. Preserve the gospel for them. Let's seek to demonstrate a life that's transformed by the gospel as God's grace changes us and that we are open and the Spirit moves in us to help those who are in need. Amen? Let's pray.